This is a Fuente podcast. It was where Abraham lied to Pharaoh and said that Sarah was his wife. Uh, and that plague broke out in Egypt. There's all these parallels to the Exodus story. God had promised Abraham that he would bless the nations through his seed, but Abraham didn't believe him. Or if he had believed him, he would not have lied about his sister, uh, his wife being his sister. We're going to continue on now into chapter 13. And Abram came from Egypt, he and his wife, and all he had, and Lot together with him to the Negev. What's interesting, if you'll notice, is that Lot, who is mentioned here, wasn't mentioned at all in the story in Egypt. Why is this, I wonder? Potentially, here's the, the best connection I can make, is that Lot should have spoken up and told something to Abram when Abram was making that decision to lie about Sarah being his sister. Um... And there's maybe a connection. It's tenuous that that this has a connection with since Lot was okay with like someone saying that the wife was the sister, it might tie into him later on sleeping with his own daughters. Um, because later on, after the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll see that his own daughters sleep with him when he's passed out. Um, so maybe there's a connection there. Maybe not. And he went on by stages from the Negev up to Bethel. Now remember Bethel. Bet means house, El means God, it's a house of God, to the place where his tent had been before. So this is the place he was at before Egypt. Between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar he had made the first time. And Abram invoked there the name of the Lord. Now this is interesting because here he is again at this tree of Moreh. So if you remember, in the last chapter, he went to this tree of Moreh, which means teaching, okay? And impliedly, that it, that it means God was speaking to him from this tree. If you remember in the last chapter, that's when God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and, I will, and you will be a blessing. All that stuff. And he goes, he travels to the tree of Moreh. And the Lord appears to him and says, To your offspring I will give this land. Okay, And he makes an altar at that tree. Almost like a talking burning bush. Okay? And this, this sandwiches this story where he goes into Egypt and then back out of Egypt. So this is almost like a little micro form of the Exodus narrative in some ways. Kind of like how a temple is supposed to be a microcosm of the whole cosmos. This is like the one-man version of the Israelite Exodus. But instead of the tree episode being sandwiched between two parts of you know the, the Israelites are enslaved then Moses goes and, and <clears throat> talks to the burning bush and then the Israelites are enslaved again here the sandwich is reversed uh, Abram is talked to at a tree builds an altar then he goes to Egypt and then he comes back to this tree and he uh, to this altar that he'd made before uh, to the place, it says, it's to the place of the altar he'd made the first time, and he invoked there the name of the Lord. And here's this ongoing theme to this idea. He's the son of Shem. That means the name. Um, he's told by God that his name's going to be great. And then he calls on the name of the Lord at the altar the last time. And here he calls on the name of the Lord again. And this compare now to the sons of God being Hashem, people of the name. And the people building the Tower of Babel wanting to be, to make a name for themselves. 
It's like a counterpoint to those two uh, stories. And Lot too, who came along with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not support their dwelling together, for their substance was great, and they could not dwell together. So you have this massive amount of land, okay? Um, and so it looks like the author here is trying to just make a narrative point to create conflict here. Because it makes no logical sense for two herdsmen to, like, really? They don't have enough land between the two of them with this open country? <clears throat> well, why does the narrator want to cause a conflict here? Well, we'll continue on. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flocks and the herdsmen of Lot's flocks. The Canaanite and the Perizzite were then dwelling in the land. And Abram said to Lot, Pray, let there be no contention between you and me, between your herdsmen and mine, for we are kinsmen. Is not all the land before you? Pray, let us part company. If you take the left hand, then I shall go right. If you take the right hand, I shall go left. And Lot raised his eyes, listen, and saw the whole plain of the Jordan, saw that it, all of it was well watered before the Lord's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, till you come to Zoar. Okay, so Lot is seeing sort of a false Eden. It's juicy like Eden, but it's also like Egypt. And there's going to be a connection between Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Tower of Babel, and the, the city that's built by, uh, uh, by Cain in Babylon. This idea of like cities being sort of bad and people of the plains being good and of the garden sort of good. Okay. Um, and Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan. So, was that uh, a selfless thing that Lot did? Did he give Abram the good land? No. No, he took the good land for himself. And that's that surface level reading that everyone was taught in Sunday school. The deeper story going on there is he's kind of creating a false Eden. Here's something else that's part of the deeper story. And Lot chose for himself the whole play of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and they parted from one another. Eastward. Where have we heard about someone traveling eastward before in the Bible already up to this point? This is after the fall. We hear about Cain traveling eastward. So while the last chapter sort of looks like an echo of the Garden of Eden story in Genesis 3, remember Abram was lying, kind of like the Nahash, and Pharaoh saw and took. And now we have another echo going on, where in our next story, just like Cain going east, we have another character going east. And so he's sort of like an echo of Cain. And so we're supposed to be comparing those stories in our minds as we go. It says, And Cain went out from the Lord's presence and dwelled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, so this is two characters that are both tied to cities and both moving east. Okay, and guess what? If you're in Israel, what's in the east? Babylon. 
Babylon's in the east. Far east. The, uh, okay. Eastward, and they parted from one another. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. And he set up his tent near Sodom. This is what um, I want to point out, too, is he sees, it says, uh, he raised his eyes and saw the plain. He saw it and took it. That's sort of that same little pattern with Pharaoh seeing and taking, and the sons of God seeing and taking. And Adam and Eve seeing and taking in the garden. Here's Alter's note. There's no repetition of saw in the Hebrew. Hebrew grammar allows the single verb to govern simultaneously the direct object, the whole plane of the Jordan, and the relative clause that modifies the direct object. What is significant thematically is that the point of view of the entire clause is Lot's. The writer may well have drawn on a tradition that the whole plane of the Jordan down to the Dead Sea before some remembered cataclysm was abundantly fertile. But it is Lot who sees the plain in hyperbolic terms, likening it to the garden of the Lord. Presumably Eden, far to the east, and to the fabulously irrigated Egypt to the south. Archaeologists have in fact discovered traces of an ancient irrigation system in the plains of the Jordan. Um, this is what he says about dwelled in cities, set up his tent. At least in the first phase of his inhabitation of the plain, Lot is represented ambiguously, either living in a town or camping near one. From the writer's perspective, abandoning the semi-nomadic life for urban existence can only spell trouble. The verb achal derives from the, the noun tent, ochel, uh, is relatively rare and seems to mean both to set up a tent and to fold a tent in preparation for moving on. So he dwells near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were very evil offenders against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot parted from him, Raise your eyes. Okay, so remember, Lot raises his own eyes. But here God is telling Abram to raise his eyes. And Abram obeys. Raise your eyes and look out from the place where you are, to the north and the south and the east and the west. For all the land you see, I will give it to you. Uh, give it to your seed forever, and I will make your seed like the dust of the earth. So remember, um, Adam is made from the Adama. He's made from the dirt. And then remember, with Noah, Noah's called a, a man of the soil. So if you look at, um, I think it's chapter. Nine, where that has all the uh, weird incest and stuff, where he, uh, where Ham has sex with his own mom. Uh, it says, "And Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard." Okay, so he's called a man of the soil, and here God is telling Abram, "I'm going to make your descendants like the dust of the earth." So there's this connection there between Israel. And these two people, they're supposed to be bringing about creation. Okay. Adam was supposed to bring about creation and have the identic ideal and be fruitful and multiply and make the earth like the Garden of Eden, full of life. Okay. And a place where divinity and humanity mixed. That gets screwed up. Noah comes along, this guy named Noah, and he's supposed to bring rest. And he's described as being with the animals. And he's born on Tishri 1, which is the anniversary of creation in Jewish ideology. And he's told to be fruitful, multiply. Um, and he's given a blessing, okay? Um, and 
he blows it too by getting really, really. He so he plants a vineyard, a garden, and he takes the fruit of it in the wrong way and starts deciding good and evil for himself. He gets drunk. Ham has sex with uh, his own mom and tries to take over the family. Noah gets really angry. All the stuff you didn't learn about in Sunday school. Okay, and so there's a failure there too, but both of these guys are of the dirt, and now Abram is being told, your descendants will be like the dirt. And it's this connection to God using Israel to be this bringer of new creation like Adam and Noah were supposed to be. And if you spoke Hebrew... This would be so obvious to you if you're reading it and meditating on it. Because you'd see Adam, Adama, Adama, Adama over and over. Okay, um, I'll make your seed like the dust of the earth. Um, and I want to stop at that word seed there also. There's a connection between the Jewish people and the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you look over at Genesis 15... Or not Genesis, Exodus 15, when God has just saved the Jews from the Egyptians in the Exodus narrative, Moses starts singing a song. And it has some very, very interesting theology in it that ties in with this idea of the Jewish people being like this Edenic ideal for the world. They're supposed to bless the world. Okay, here's the, the song of Moses. You led forth in your kindness this people that you redeemed. Okay, this is after the Exodus. To redeem something means to pay a price to, to buy something back. Okay, and he's getting them back out of Egypt. You guided them in your strength to your holy abode. What would be a holy, the holy abode of the gods in ancient Jewish thought? The Garden of Eden. Okay. Peoples heard, they quaked, they seized Philistia's dwellers. Then were the chieftains of Edom dismayed. Edom is the same area as Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, it's the, the Jordanian plain. The dukes of Moab shuddered, it sounds like a doo-wop band, shuddered, shuddering seized them, and the dwellers of Canaan quailed. Terror and fear fell upon them all. As your arm loomed big, they were like a stone. Till your people crossed over, O Lord, till you made yours crossed over. So that's the chaotic waters being defeated by God again. He split them like he did at creation. You'll bring them, you'll plant them on the mount of your state. Where have we seen a mountain with like gardens all over it? A firm place for your dwelling you've wrought, O Lord. The sanctum, O sovereign, your hands firmly founded. The Lord shall be king for all time. So it's this idea that the Jewish people are a lot like the... Um, the Garden of Eden, okay, and there our next hope for bringing about the snake slayer, okay. All right, so I'll make your seed like the dust of the earth. Could a man count the dust of the earth? So too your seed might be counted. Rise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for to you I will give it. Why does God ask Abram to walk through the land there? The only thing I can reckon from that is that it's a gift that God's given him and he wants him to enjoy the gift um, well so how does that apply to us if any of you out there are married you need to experience your spouse your spouse is a gift from God you need to experience 
the different attributes of their personality and experience them in new ways and see them as a gift. And uh, whenever you're eating something and it tastes good, take time to really focus on how good it tastes. Explore the gifts of your life. Okay, so he uh, orders him to walk through. And Abram took up his tent and came to dwell in the terebinths of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and he built an altar there. So a terebinth is a kind of tree. And he's told to make um, another, or he makes another altar there. And remember, that, that kind of connects him back to um, Noah. And also, Cain and Abel made offerings. I'm not sure if they had altars. Uh, I want to read this note about the dust from Altar. Unusually for the use of simile in the Bible, the meaning of the simile spelled out after the image is introduced. Perhaps this reflects the high didactic solemnity of the moment of promise, though the comparison with dust might also raise negative associations that would have, would have to be excluded. And this, I thought, was really profound. The great Yiddish poet Yaakov Gladstein wrote a bitter poem after the Nazi genocide, which proposes that, indeed, the seed of Abraham has become like the dust of the earth. I thought it was, like, very, very moving and intense. Walk about the land through the length and the death. This is altar again. Walking around the perimeter of a piece of property was a common legal ritual in the ancient Near East for taking final possession. The formula, I have given it to so-and-so and to his sons forever, is a well-attested legal formula in the region for conveyance of property going back as far as the Ugaritic texts, composed in the 14th and 13th centuries. Okay, and I want to um, read one more thing here. This is from Walton on patriarchal religion. He talks about, in this article, how uh, in the time of the patriarchs around 2000 BC, a lot of times families would have their own familial deity that was kind of a lesser god that just belonged to the family. He says... The Lord Yahweh is not portrayed as a God whom Abram already worshipped. It is interesting, then, that God did not give him a doctrinal statement or require rituals or issue demands when he appears to Abram. He makes an offer. Yahweh does not tell Abram that he is the only God there is, and he does not ask him to stop worshipping the gods his family is worshipping. God does not tell him to get rid of his idols, nor does he proclaim a coming Messiah or salvation. Instead, God says that he has something to give Abram if Abram is willing to give up some things first. I thought that was interesting. Um, a lot of times, Christians will try to distill the Bible down to, you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. It's like two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament, and it has like nothing like that. I mean, the, the closest you can get is probably Isaiah 53. But even the he heaven's not even mentioned. Every time somebody dies, they go to Sheol. Okay? And so I think whenever we're focusing so much on heaven, and not the more relational, you know, on earth aspects, we're missing out on, like, the fruits of the garden of this relationship with God. Um, and we're focusing on medieval theology and not the here and now and making our world better i think it's a huge distraction as imagers of god we're supposed to be bringing order to the chaos around us just like yahweh does with the three forms of chaos in the original creation story okay all right on the next one we're going to go into 
a huge battle that Abram has and um, an interesting character named Melchizedek. All right, thank you guys. <laughs>